0: Okay, so if you check the length of this episode, you'll see that it's more than two hours long. Yes, this is definitely the longest episode of Luke's English Podcast I've ever done. And this is part two of a double episode. So if you put parts one and two together, that adds up to nearly three and a half hours of me talking about Star Wars The Last Jedi. Added to that, the next episode will also be about Star Wars... And that will be a conversation between my dad and my brother and me. So this has become something of a Star Wars marathon on Luke's English podcast. Those of you who are fans of Star Wars will probably be happy about that. Those of you who aren't interested in Star Wars, or if you just think this film completely sucks, um, of course, uh, you could just skip this episode. I will be uploading more non-Star Wars episodes soon, I promise. Okay then, so strap in and let's embark on part two of this epic Star Wars-themed episode. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. This is part two of a double episode I'm doing about Star Wars The Last Jedi. In this one, I'm going to continue going through the storyline of the film and giving my thoughts and feelings about the characters and events. I thought I'd be able to do all of this in one episode, but I have got a bit carried away, so I've split it into two parts, and you're listening to part two now. You should listen to part one before listening to this, of course, because that's how parts work generally you start with part one and then you go on to listen to part two. So if you haven't heard part one yet, then you know what to do. If you're not a fan of Star Wars, well, you could just skip this, couldn't you? I'm recording this really for the people who've seen the film and uh, or just people who, who like to hear me talking about Star Wars. I said in part one that if I was learning English, uh, I would want to hear I'd want to hear someone talking about this film. And um, so that's enough of a justification for me to do it. Plus, I just want to talk about it. Um, And uh, this is Luke's English podcast, and my name's Luke. So I think I I get to decide. Anyway, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Uh, There are spoilers. I'm revealing lots of details about the film. So you should wait until you've seen it. Before you listen to this, so if you haven't seen Star Wars Return of the Jedi, no, not Return of the Jedi, um, it, if you haven't seen Star Wars The Last Jedi, then um, watch it first before you listen to this, otherwise, I will just spoil the entire plot for you, and you, you wouldn't want that. There is a script for most of what I'm saying in this episode on the episode page on my website, so that you can read along while listening, or you can just check for certain words and phrases that you'll hear me use. And having a transcript available for you um, is really helpful if you're using this to learn English. So, yeah, you could read and listen at the same time. That kind of helps you to... um, As you're you're actually reading the the text, you're hearing my voice saying all of the words and things. So you hear the way that those words really should be pronounced. And uh, also you can actually sort of uh, see certain new words, see how they're spelt. You could copy paste them into dictionaries. In order to check out what they mean, you could then save them in your word lists and stuff. So check out the script on the page for this episode on my website. Uh, If you are listening in the Luke's English Podcast app, you can just click the link for this episode page in the episode description. Okay, and that will allow you to then read the script while you're listening. Um, You know what, I might uh, just upload... My notes and scripts and stuff as a PDF into the app so that you can access it even more easily. Then, after this episode, there will be another one about Star Wars. So, three in total. And the next one will be a chat with my brother and my dad that I recorded just after we st- uh, saw the film together about a week ago. Okay, so that's three episodes part one, part two, and then the chat with James and uh, dad. I realise I'm devoting quite a lot of podcast time to this new film, but I just really enjoy talking about it, and that's what I want to do right now at this moment, okay? And as far as I'm concerned, that's enough of a reason for me to do this on the podcast. Don't worry, I won't be doing Star Wars forever, of course, and we will get back to the other topics and themes that um, I normally talk about on the podcast soon. Okay then, so I expect that the ones that are still listening to this... Those of you who are still listening to this are the Star Wars fans. So let's now continue where I left off. And I was describing at the end of part one, I was describing that moment when General Leia gets blasted into space, when the bridge of her ship gets blown up by a couple of TIE fighters. And I said that this is quite a controversial scene. I admit that this scene is weird. Um, So I say it's controversial. That means that like this film in a broad sense, this scene in particular has divided opinion and, and a lot of people sort of think it's silly or ridiculous or or it makes them angry. Um, this scene has inspired a number of different memes which are going around the internet and stuff and I admit that this scene is weird. It's a bit strange seeing Princess Leia floating through space and we've never seen this before in a Star Wars film but I really don't think it's as bad or as ridiculous as some people think. So, the bridge of the Radus, this ship, has been blown up, and lots—all uh, the people on the bridge have been flung out into space, including Leia, Princess Leia, now General Leia. Okay, so she's hanging in space in zero gravity after the bridge of the ship has been blown up. She's hanging in zero gravity, and apparently now we have zero gravity in space. Okay. Um, even though earlier on um, in this film there was some sort of gravity because those bombs were dropping from those bombers remember that unless they were special laser bombs or maybe the the uh, the dreadnought ship was so big that it had its own gravitational pull i don't know but apparently now with leia in space there's zero gravity so i know there's no consistency regarding the science in these films as we've seen many many times this is not science fiction there doesn't need to be consistent logical physics uh, as far as i'm concerned and if your argument is uh, against this film is that this doesn't make sense that that uh, from a scientific point of view it doesn't make sense well let me let me remind you that there was virtually no science in the original films at all and probably any film any star wars films that you love have contained moments where there was utterly unscientific things happening like explosions in space or things that are central to the plot of the film like, for example, a huge um, planet-sized battle station that can blow up other planets with a big green laser. Um, So You know, this is a film series in which there are explosions in space, a huge planet, I've just said this, a huge planet-sized space station that blows things up with lasers, and a mystical force that allows people to control minds, lift objects, and even project lightning from their fingers. So, you know, using the science argument is a bit invalid, I think. In this particular scene, the science serves the characters, the action, and the plot, and it can be science can be bent this way and that way to serve the story, really. And we're supposed to just suspend our disbelief and go with the vague rules of this universe. In this case, in this scene, there is zero gravity in space, and so Leia is just hanging there. Uh, it seems that her skin may be beginning to freeze, because I think that's what happens when you're just launched into uh, zero gravity in space, right? You, it's pretty cold. I think I'm not sure exactly the ins and outs of what happens to the human body, uh, when it's exposed to, uh, space. But anyway, in this, in this situation, Leia's skin is apparently beginning to freeze. Um, she looks dead. We think, oh God, Princess Leia is dead. Um, and it's quite a shocking moment, especially since we know that, um, uh, the actress, Carrie Fisher, died after making this film, like, you know, just soon after the film was finished, uh, she died. And so that was sad because, I mean, Carrie Fisher was, um, as far as I can tell, brilliant. I mean, hilarious and clever and quite acerbic and uh, and just a great um, addition to um, the, the sort of uh, the cast and just a really interesting and funny person and it was a sad moment when she died. Um, And so this was quite eerie, like seeing her character uh, launched out into space and apparently dying uh, was quite an eerie, strange uh, moment. And she looks dead. But then her fingers twitch and her eyelids open. And when I saw this, I immediately thought to myself, oh, right, so she's using the force to keep herself alive. It's a survival thing. She's you know it's using her latent force abilities as an instinctive kind of survival thing. And then what happens is she extends her arm towards the ship and she floats back through space towards the ship, sort of saving herself. Now some people say that she flies, and they get very angry and upset, saying things like, "The force doesn't let you fly, you can't fly. No one flies in Star Wars well. First of all, she's not flying, okay? She's floating through zero gravity, and there is a difference. Uh, she's not, you know, on the surface of a planet in an atmosphere with gravity flying like Superman. She's in zero gravity floating, okay? Now, it wouldn't require much force power to float through zero gravity, would it, right? Now, I know, I mean, even having this argument is ridiculous, because this is a, a, um, a universe in which, uh, you know, spaceships like uh seem to have like kind of jet engines or um uh combustion engines that shoot them through space even though that's not really necessary all you need is one blast and the ship would just carry on going you know so the physics is the physics argument is pointless but anyway if she was in zero gravity it wouldn't require much force power For her to just sort of pull herself back to the ship because there is no atmosphere or gravity, so it just requires a little bit of force power to pull herself back to the ship. Also, we know that Leia is force sensitive, uh, but up until this point, her power has just been to do things like communicate with Luke through the force or to feel and sense things through the force, and perhaps the suggestion that she's been influencing events for example, moments in certain battles through the force, you know, like perhaps helping that bomber in the opening battle sequence and maybe influencing Kylo Ren's decision not to attack the fleet and so on. So she has the force. We know that she has the force from previous films, but she's never really used it to her full potential. Um, She's never had like, you know, Jedi training or, or whatever. So it's not hard to imagine that in a crucial moment like this, a survival moment, that she would be capable of keeping herself alive, maybe even by instinct, and pulling herself back to the ship through, um, the, through zero gravity where there is no uh, friction or, or anything like that, no resistance. Now, so we see this slightly odd yet strangely beautiful image of Leia floating through space in the middle of a battle. And as I've said, it's eerie, E-E-R-I-E, eerie, which means kind of strange and a little bit spooky. And we've never seen anything like this before. Again, a lot of people hate this scene, but I think they're being a little bit hysterical. Um, It's true, this hasn't happened before. Um, And I guess that's what makes some people a bit angry. They're like, this just isn't consistent. It's not consistent. Well, yeah, It isn't really consistent, but, you know, people, we we wanted new things to happen in this film, didn't we? We wanted some new stuff. Um, A lot of people complained about Episode 7, The Force Awakens, uh, because it contained nothing new. They said that it was just, uh, you know, uh, a repeat of uh, Episode 4 and that there was nothing new. Well, this is something new. And it's not completely far-fetched. It's it's fairly believable. She's not flying. She's floating in zero gravity, okay? So Leia can't fly now. She's not Superwoman. It's zero gravity. She's just floating. So I'm fine with this scene, but only fine with it. I still, I don't know. It's It was a bit odd, but I'm not throwing my toys out of the pram. They could have done it differently, you know, um, that they could have done it differently like for example she maybe she could have used the force to sort of as a sort of uh protective force field to prevent the the bridge from exploding or maybe to deflect the laser beams or something or maybe she could have influenced the pilots to to prevent them from firing their torpedoes in the first place they could have done it differently uh, other criticisms of this scene include the f- the fact that leia uses the force here just to save herself and that other characters die, and she could have saved them well, let's face it. this film is all about breaking away from the old stuff, and that means that some of the old characters have to die, and that includes some people like Admiral Akbar, you know the guy who looks like a fish um i know I know we love Admiral Akbar, he's the guy who says it's a trap, you know that guy we love Admiral Akbar, but even Admiral Akbar. Has to go, you know. We're going to have to lose some of these characters as we move into the kind of new um, Star Wars universe. I'm not that bothered that Akbar is gone. I liked him. I liked the way he said, It's a trap, and the way he looked like a fish. Um, I had the Admiral Akbar toy when I was a child, but it's fine. We can let him go. These are supposed to be tragic events in which people die. So, you know, she could have saved the others, but I think it, I see it as just a sort of instinct uh the the force comes out as a survival instinct in this moment maybe she yeah maybe she could have used the force differently i've mentioned this about how she could have maybe contained the explosion and held the bridge together But surely that would have taken much more Force strength and Force ability. And I reckon keeping herself alive and then just floating back to the ship is quite consistent with the fact that she's never uh, fully trained or developed her her Force abilities. Um, So, yeah, I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about it, but I I quite like it. I thought it was actually quite a beautiful moment in a way that, you know, just this strange uh, floating Princess Leia is just weird and something new and spooky and eerie and and I'm okay with that. Um I think it was CGI. I think her face looked like it was computer generated, which was also a bit weird, you know, when you see a character who um is suddenly a computer image, it it does take you out of the film. It's a bit jarring. Um and uh, it's a bit uncanny. It's like eh, it doesn't look quite like her. It looks a bit like a model or something. But um just weird. I mean, I don't mind the weird moments. I quite like weirdness. I think it's interesting. Um, so anyway, this moment is also, uh, weird. And I've, I've said this already as well. These, this is in my notes here. I'm getting ahead of myself sometimes and saying things that I've already written down but haven't read out yet. But anyway, I'll read it out anyway. This moment is also weird and spooky, considering the fact that we all know that Carrie Fisher died just after making this film. Here in the film, we see her character apparently die, but then her eyes open and she makes a miraculous recovery. I find this spooky and odd, but it doesn't make me angry or make me want to throw my toys out of the pram and weep for the death of Star Wars. I think that's a bit hysterical. Also there's a sense that in the negative reaction to this scene and to quite a lot of the rest of the film there's a possibly a bit of sexism going on perhaps people just don't like the idea of a woman flying uh, i know one person in particular who expressed this opinion i know just someone i know personally who i talked to about this and expressed this idea like what women can fly now can they like women can do anything in movies now this is ridiculous it's just rampant feminism Uh, Again, that seems like a slightly hysterical reaction. How many times have we seen flying men in movies? Loads of them. How many times are male heroes celebrated by seeing them fly through the air? Tons of times. We've got Superman, Batman, or I batman doesn't really fly but almost iron man spider-man thor tons of other characters have kind of like flown around and been super powered awesome male characters nobody complains about flying men it happens all the time and it's not going to stop happening then we get one flying woman who isn't even flying and some people throw their toys out of the pram and start complaining about rampant feminism it's not the end of the world some people might say uh But it's not consistent with the films. Well, then I'd say yes, it is consistent. She's using her latent force abilities to briefly preserve her life and to pull herself back to the ship. That's it. Now you might disagree with me on this one. Fair enough. Okay, and you you might have reasons that I haven't sort of noted here because it is a a very a very uh, very divisive moment in the film, and I think a lot of people just couldn't handle this moment and this was the moment when they just gave up on on the film this and a few other um, points but you know if that's you do write your thoughts in the comment section what exactly is wrong with this moment in your opinion put your thoughts into words i've given you my point of view why not give me yours okay so leia gets back to the ship and she's in a coma she's replaced by uh, Vice Admiral Holdo, who is um, the next in line, basically. Um, so Vice Admiral Holdo replaces Princess Leia. And uh, she's played by Laura Dern, who we remember from Star uh, not Star Trek. What am I talking? No, we remember her from Jurassic Park. That's right. So Vice Admiral Holdo turns up. She's got like a weird purple haircut. And we don't really know what to make of her. OK, now I need to um, skip to the, one of the other storylines, uh, in this film, so I've just described mainly what happened with the resistance, from you know them escaping uh, to them um, being tracked through hyperspace, to um, Kylo Ren and his Tie Fighters attacking uh, one of the ships and blowing uh, up the bridge, and Leia being sent out into space and floating back again. And now I'd like to kind of talk about the the Luke Skywalker Ray uh, part of the story. So this is what happens on Acto. This um, island in the sea, uh, which is where Luke Skywalker has been living like a reclusive hermit uh, since he um, he kind of disappeared following uh, the big failure that he had when uh, Ben Solo turned to the dark side and destroyed his Jedi Academy. So we heard about that in Episode Seven, and at the end of Episode Seven, we, you know they find the location of Luke Skywalker. He's on this island. Ray comes to visit him. And she um, presents him with the with the old lightsaber that he used to own um, as if to say, come on, Luke, uh, sort yourself out, mate. Come and join us. We need your help. We need uh, Luke Skywalker to come and save the day. And this is one of the those moments that we were all expecting. You know, we were thinking, what's going to happen next? And, you know, I'm sure some people were thinking he's going to... Um, You know, he's going to see Ray, and he's immediately going to sense her force power and he's going to see the lightsaber and he's going to remember. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm Luke Skywalker. This is my lightsaber. Thanks for returning it to me. Uh, Let's now go and kick some ass on a on a galactic level. Um, Some of us thought that would happen. Other people thought, well, he's probably going to reject the lightsaber because it's complicated. You know, he's he's um, he's chosen to to disappear. He's obviously got some issues. So anyway, we, we were wondering what was going to happen. Some people thought that maybe Luke would be like, Ray, my you're my daughter, you know. It's just sort of one of those Star Wars moments like, um, Ray, wait a minute, you are my daughter. But um, that didn't happen. In fact, what happened was Ray gave him the lightsaber and it was, you know, first of all, like Mark Hamill is brilliant in this film. Uh, absolutely brilliant. I mean, from... Episode Four, when he was this fresh faced farm boy, quite naive, um, ambitious, wanting adventure, unaware of things like the dark side and the uh, the uh, and his place in the universe, um, desperate to escape tatooine and go off and have adventures and things, and then you know we see him just in the in those three films changed to become a darker character. And then in the 30 years between episode uh, six and, and now, it's actually 30 years in the f- in the film world. I don't know how many years it is in the real world, but sh- he has become quite grizzled and haggard. Um, he's, he's grown his hair. He's got like a long uh, gray beard and he looks like a wizened old hermit or maybe he looks a bit like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings. Um, but he's become this... Mysterious kind of uh, um, haggard old um, hermit in a cape. Uh, he looks a bit like Obi Wan Kenobi, uh, but it's uh, Obi Wan Kenobi who's let himself go, and uh, that's interesting. And it, it's, there's a lot of character in in Mark Hamill's performance. Like he really adds a lot of gravity and and depth to it. He's brilliant. I loved Mark Hamill in this film. So Ray hands him the lightsaber, and he handles it with his his one robotic hand because remember Darth Vader chopped that hand off in the Empire Strikes Back and that's when he lost that lightsaber and so he he takes the lightsaber again in his robotic hand and it's very sort of um, significant and we think wow this is amazing what's going to happen next and he just chucks the lightsaber over over his shoulder he just throws it away Um, and I was really shocked by that moment I was gobsmacked my jaw dropped and I just went, oh, "Whoa! oh my God, did he just throw it over his shoulder? He just chucks it over his shoulder in a very dismissive way. I was expecting him to refuse the lightsaber, to be honest, but I didn't expect him to just throw it over his shoulder. Uh, so I was shocked at that point, but I went with it. And I, I remember actually, as I saw that, I went, "Oh, oh, wow. And I thought a lot of people are going to dislike that. Because it's a very dismissive thing that he does, just throws it over his shoulder and he just walks away. Now, um, this is another one of those moments in this film that's a deal breaker for some people. Like Leia floating through space, Luke Skywalker chucking uh, the lightsaber over his shoulder is a deal breaker for a lot of people. And this is when um, you know a lot of people just lost faith with the film. Um, And, you know, some people see Luke throw the lightsaber over his shoulder and they find it to be a fundamental problem. I can understand that. I think it seems to be a bit dismissive and casual. But this is where... Luke, this is just where Luke is as a character in the story. He's been on this island for God knows how long, and he's utterly lost faith in the Jedi and in the so-called myth of Luke Skywalker. He doesn't believe in these symbols anymore, and he has no time for people who expect him to live up to the legend of Luke Skywalker. And that's because at one point he believed in his own legend himself. And as a result of that, he thought he could do more than he could. And this ended in complete failure. He couldn't live up to all the expectations that he even had of himself. And so he's come to a point where he's trying to, he's rejecting all of that because, in his mind, all of that flashy Luke Skywalker Jedi stuff just leads ultimately to failure and you know, and darkness, you know, and you can see it in the prequels or the Jedi doing all the things that they did. Um, They made bad decisions and it ended up creating Darth Vader, you know. Darth Vader was partly created by the Jedi in the way that they sort of perhaps arrogantly or blindly um, made certain decisions along the way. And he seems to have worked out that the Jedi... um, sort of you know don't realize that they're they're part of a kind of a balance and the more let's say if the if the Jedi do Jedi things then as a natural reaction the force is going to um, counterbalance that by bringing the darkness up as well and so Lucas I think rejected all of this stuff because he's realized well you know I'm not following the Jedi way because it doesn't seem to solve the problem. And that the darkness will always rise to balance out the, the light. And so Luke is in this sort of grey area. It's quite interesting. I, I, I think it's really fascinating. And I like the fact that I was shocked in that in that moment. And it was, you know, when he threw the lightsaber over his shoulder, I kind of like, ooh, okay, this is going to get interesting. I wonder what's going to happen next. Um, so some people say that this is not consistent with Luke's character which is one of the main complaints. They say that this is, you know, just inconsistent with uh, Luke's character and that, that, that Luke Skywalker, the real Luke Skywalker from the original trilogy, would never do that. But, you know, I, I would say, well, why not? Why can't Luke have gone in this direction in the 30 years since Return of the Jedi? To me, it just shows depth of character and it's, it, you know, people fail and people change the, their their outlook on life, you know? Um we've seen it lots of times, you know someone gets to a certain point where something really bad happens to them, and they're met with a big challenge and a, and a huge failure when they're expected to succeed, and um, it can be devastating to, to, to a person. And so you know sometimes people do get broken by uh, experiences. and that's very interesting to explore, I think, in a film, especially in a Star Wars film. So um, I found it really interesting that Luke has undergone such dramatic and traumatic changes since episode six. And also it's just part of a a rich and diverse character progression from this innocent farm boy looking for adventure to this kind of um, wounded, uh, psychologically wounded um, uh, uh, old man um, who's kind of lost his faith in, in it all. I think that's a really interesting cr- progression, rather than just having him just simply being the uh, the, the brave, uh, resourceful hero, and that's it. That sounds like a bit of a one-note song. I like the fact that there's real progression and, and diversity here in this character. So Luke Luke's character in this film is about... It's all about learning from failure, about being fallible, about struggling with expectations, about the legacy of the Jedi, about the heavy burden that is being the last Jedi. Uh, And in this film, they could have made Luke a massively powerful hero who takes on the First Order armed only with his laser sword, as he says himself in in the film. But instead, they went for a more complex study of a man who's failed isolated himself and then slowly comes to terms with what it means to be a myth and how he can use this to do powerful things ultimately so uh, Luke Skywalker chucks the lightsaber away and Ray hangs about you know she she um, you know is is uh, convinced that Luke Skywalker uh, can be Can be uh, persuaded to come and and help the, the, uh, uh, what is it, the resistance. Um, So she hangs around, but Luke refuses to talk to her, and he locks himself in his little hut. Incidentally, uh, the location for this uh, filming is, uh, what is it called, the Skellig Islands, just off Ireland. And uh, uh, when we were on holiday in Ireland once, uh, James and Dad and me actually went on a day trip on a boat to this island, and we climbed up those steps and we looked at those huts. They're, they're real things. They're actually there. They're old, ancient, uh, uh, like stone huts. And uh, it's a fantastic place. The, the island is covered in uh, these little birds called puffins, these very cute little birds with these sort of multicolored beaks, uh, puffins all over the island. And apparently that's why the porgs were invented uh, the Porgs are there to cover up the Puffins. So any Puffins that are actually in any of the shots on this island, they get actually replaced using CGI with these Porgs. Um, I'll talk more about Porgs in a moment. So um, we get some scenes which show Luke's weird and eccentric lifestyle on the island. Um, and I get the impression that he's sort of making, he's kind of making fun of Ray or he's being intentionally weird in order to, just annoy her. Um, So he fishes for uh, a massive fish in the sea, and there's quite a funny scene where he he uses this huge uh, kind of pole with a big spike on the end, and he manages to spike a fish. And then you see him carrying this ridiculous fish up the hill uh, over his shoulder, and it's just completely hilarious. Uh, he, He lives among the porgs. He even drinks weird milk from the breast of some kind of strange sea mammal. Not He doesn't drink it directly from the breast, but he fills a flask with green milk that he gets from the breast of this weird creature that looks a bit like a walrus or something. He then drinks the milk and it drips down his beard and he stares at Ray while doing this, looking sort of pleased with himself. He's being purposefully disgusting and Ray uh, thinks it's it's really weird. Now, this is one of those scenes that um, people are saying is like a really out of place bit of humor uh i think i actually really enjoyed it i thought it was really disgusting and strange and inappropriate um and that's why i like it um i just think you i've never seen well i say i've never seen something like that in star wars before there have been weird and creepy things in star wars before but this one is maybe the weirdest and most creepy the disgusting green milk (laughs) um so yeah, it's it, this green milk scene is another controversial one. Controversial meaning that it has split opinions. Some people say this kind of thing has no place in Star Wars and that the humour didn't really work and that they want Star Wars to be this perpetually serious um, uh, thing where it's just this po-faced tone all the way through. Um, it's a complicated one, isn't it? Uh, humour in Star Wars. Sometimes it, you know, it it can backfire. I mean, you know, look at Jar Jar Binks. That's what George Lucas tried to do in the in the prequel trilogy in order to inject a bit of light-hearted humor into it, and he ended up with this ridiculous sort of CGI character flapping around the place. And I don't know anyone who likes Jar Jar Binks. So a lot of people for the prequels said, "Oh, I can't stand Jar Jar." Uh, he ruined the film, and that kind of humour is has no place. That kind of children's cartoon kind of stuff has no place in Star Wars. Well, now we've got this fairly twisted adult kind of bizarre humour in The Last Jedi, and you know a whole bunch of other people, maybe even the same people, are getting upset about it now. But I, I actually quite enjoyed the, the green milk scene, and I just thought it was... Uh, I don't know how to describe it really. I just found it amusingly inappropriate, uh, but maybe that's just me. Um, so I was personally fine with it. Both times I saw this in the cinema, I was one of the only ones laughing at this moment. The first time I saw it in the cinema, uh, I went. I mean, I you know I live in Paris, and and I went to the to a screening um, during the day. Does it matter if, if I'm in Paris? I don't know. But the, the, the place was full of, of men, basically. Men of around my age, who obviously had nothing better to do uh, during the day, not in the evening, to go and see this. And I looked around at all these guys, and I thought, oh, well, so these are my people, obviously. And during the film, I laughed a lot. I found myself laughing all the way through with the funny moments, but I may be the only one um i don't know maybe that's maybe some of it was lost in translation i don't know but i found that the rest of the audience watching it with me were a little bit on the serious side i would say i tried not to let my laughter distract anyone and i i you know i probably laughed when there was sound going on on the screen and when it was silent you know i tried to keep my laughing under control um but i didn't hear many other people laughing which is a pity um So, I don't mind a bit of weird humour. I think Star Wars has always featured this kind of thing. For example, Jabba the Hutt. Jabba the Hutt is a weird, creepy slug which licks its slimy lips in a really creepy way when it's looking at female characters. And there are plenty of other weird moments in the original trilogy. None of them are as blatant as this green milk scene, but it's not a complete departure from the world of Star Wars, in my opinion. And just personally, I found it really funny. I also thought that this was Luke testing Ray a bit in a similar way to how Yoda tested Luke in The Empire Strikes Back, and I enjoyed that parallel. When Luke first arrives on Dagobah to meet Yoda in episode five, and he doesn't know what Yoda looks like, Yoda meets him and makes him think he's just a weird and annoying little creature. He pretends to fight with R2-D2. He steals Luke's food. He acts kind of like an annoying child and he seems totally eccentric and strange. It's only later that Yoda reveals himself to be a great master. It's as if he needed to show Luke that you shouldn't expect heroes to look like heroes, and that true heroism is in your actions and not in your appearance. Similarly, Obi-Wan Kenobi disguises himself as just a crazy old man, and that's his reputation. I think Luke's uncle Owen says, oh, you know, that... That wizard is just a crazy old man. Um, And so, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi is like a a, a crazy old hermit. And it's a sort of disguise, I think. Yoda does the same thing. He um, becomes a recluse on Dagobah, and he disguises himself as just this weird little eccentric alien thing. But both Obi-Wan and Yoda, under the surface, are incredibly powerful, wise uh, Jedi masters so maybe there's a touch of that going on here, that Luke is sort of maintaining this uh, appearance in order to test Ray uh, a little bit. And that underneath all of that, there is a more serious, um, you know, person um, hiding. Also, this is a trope, I think, in a lot of Kung Fu movies from the 70s. I've seen a lot of those kind of Hong Kong kung, movie, kung fu movies from the 70s. I'm talking about things like the very early Jackie Chan films, like Drunken Master and stuff like that. This is the sort of thing that happens in those uh, kung fu movies. The kung fu master often appears as a sort of crazy fool who tests the patience of the main apprentice, giving him lots of annoying tests. And secretly, he's training the apprentice without him realising it. So I like Luke's grumpy, weird side in this, and I found it to be a pleasant surprise. Anyway, Ray tries unsuccessfully to persuade Luke to join the resistance, and Luke hides in his cabin. Until Chewbacca turns up and smashes the door in, right chewie arrives and smashes the door in and luke finds out that han solo is dead and uh he doesn't he has not realized it before because luke uh, has shut himself off from the force we find out so he finds out that han solo has died this doesn't change his mind i think it makes him sad but it doesn't change his mind although maybe it maybe it starts to have an effect on him he then uh visits the Millennium Falcon, which is parked on the island. Um, and this is a big nostalgia moment. This is the first time we've seen Luke on the on the Falcon since the original trilogy. And um, so we see Luke kind of walking through the corridors of the Millennium Falcon, which is a sort of weirdly emotional nostalgia hit. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting considering what Luke looks like these days he's this dark haggard character when previously in this environment he was a totally different person and he finds r2d2 and the moment that they reunite that luke and r2 reunite is pretty amazing when you consider the 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 history between luke and r2d2 and r2 has always been there for luke you know he's they they have this interesting bond the two of them and R2 has always been the one who seems to understand Luke, in a way. Uh, he's like his spirit animal or something. So there's this really weird emotional uh, connection between the two of them. And so it's strangely touching when Luke is reunited with R2-D2. Isn't it weird that just this droid that looks a bit like a, a dustbin can sort of elicit such an emotional reaction But there it is. And Luke removes his hood in order to see R2. And that reminded me of the moment when Obi-Wan Kenobi removed his hood to look at R2-D2 in episode four. And I have to say that them reuniting made me well up. Um, The tears appeared in my eyes. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it. R two D two is so important to Luke's whole journey. That's the whole reason that he ended up on this adventure in the first place. Is because he, he, he kind of just by coincidence came into, um, came to be the owner of R two D two, and R two D two. You know, Luke stumbled across that message from Princess Leia that was saved in R two D 2s memory banks, and that's that's what catapulted Luke onto this whole journey in the first place. So. R2 seems to try and persuade Luke to join the resistance. Uh, I think R2-D2 swears at one point. I think it's implied that R2-D2 has used a a swear word. Um, But anyway, uh, he tries to persuade Luke to join the resistance, but Luke says, no way. Uh, There's nothing you can do to persuade me to come back. And R2's response is quite brilliant. He just plays the hologram message of Princess Leia from episode four. And you know he just immediately projects this the original hologram message of princess leia um and that's another powerful bit of nostalgia but it's a perfectly uh perfectly used little thing i mean it's a perfect device that they've done in the film which takes us straight back to luke's sort of first awakening as it were uh for you know the way he woke up to um these bigger things in the universe. Um, it was a magical moment in the original film and it was a magical moment in this film as well. And Luke says, Oh, that was a cheap move or something. Uh, and it's a bit true. This is a slightly cheap way for R2D to, to persuade Luke, you know, to go straight for the jugular, uh, straight for the jugular. The jugular is a, is a vein in your throat. If you go straight for the jugular, it's like going straight for your, your weak point. Um, so R two goes straight for the jugular on this one, or he gets him straight in the, uh, straight in the gut. Um, uh, so a fairly cheap move by R two, but also a fairly cheap way for the film to make uh, any Star Wars fan feel a bit emotional. And this was this was always one of the most magical moments in the original film when. Um, Luke Skywalker was this frustrated farm boy dreaming of having adventures and this hologram of a beautiful princess asking for help completely captured his imagination and catapulted him on this journey into adventure, heroism, the force and self-discovery. And the function of it here is that it brings Luke one step further towards remembering who he was and it's a stark contrast to who he has become now. But he's still committed to the fact that he can't be involved because he's convinced that he'll do more harm than good by going back to that kind of thing. In fact, Luke has cut himself off from the Force completely. He's lost faith in the Jedi Order. But you get the sense that he's not a lost cause. He acts like he's defiantly against the idea of coming back. Uh, but we see that he's quite curious about Rey. Um Um, And that there is still a spark of the old Luke Skywalker in there. At one point, Rey seems to be called to a big tree on the island. She just sort of gets this sense that this tree is calling to her. I think this tree is, is the original Jedi Temple or it's been described as a Force tree or something. I'm not sure of its significance completely. But I expect that this tree is mentioned in one of the books or something like that. Uh, the tree also houses the sacred Jedi texts, which are basically well, they're, they're the sacred Jedi texts. I suppose they contain all of the uh, teachings of the Jedi. And Ray seems to be drawn to this place, and Luke notices this, and he follows her from a distance. That's when he becomes curious about Ray when he notices that she's been drawn to this significant place. And there's an interesting exchange there where we see that Ray is confused and she doesn't know who she is. She doesn't understand how she has her force sensitivity and who her parents are. She's, you know, she's feeling a bit force sensitive, I think. She's desperately looking for answers to the questions of her identity. Um, While also... Uh, trying to get Luke to come and help the resistance, so she seems lost and is desperate for guidance. I like these moments where Daisy Ridley seems to be vulnerable as a person. She's kind of emotionally quite vulnerable in these moments. She doesn't know who she is, you know. It's a it's a mystery to her, and she s- seems sort of lost and in, in need of help. So I've I've no idea how the time works here. All of this stuff is going on on Acto while the Resistance are battling against time in space somewhere, uh, escaping from the First Order. So I'm not sure of the time, how the time relates. Uh, It feels like on Acto there are a few days pass, whereas the, you know, the Resistance are escaping from the First Order for like a matter of hours or something. I don't really know. Perhaps Acto runs on different time cycles. God knows. I don't know. I don't think it really matters that much. Uh, Luke, finally rain, uh, um, Luke finally agrees to train uh Trey Rain—that doesn't make sense. Luke finally agrees to train Ray a bit, and he says something like, "Tomorrow at dawn, three lessons." Again, this is a bit like a kung fu movie or a samurai movie or something. When the training begins at, at dawn, and, and that's really cool. So Luke gives three lessons about the Jedi and why they have to end which is his his position now that you know he he thinks that he's it's you know that the jedi are a legacy of failure and that they need to end um and all the the while uh, while this is happening ray keeps having these weird force visions with kylo ren so for some reason ray and kylo ren keep having weird force visions in which they're connected And they chat with each other. It's a bit like Skype or something, you know, or FaceTime. Force time, you could call it. So Ray and Kylo sort of weirdly keep getting connected through Force time. And that's pretty interesting because that's something new that we haven't seen in the Force before. We've had people being connected through the Force and talking to each other. You know, like Princess Leia and Luke talking to each other. Darth Vader talking to Luke. You know, uh, Luke talking to uh, force ghosts uh, and things like that. But we've never had two people connected where they can actually see each other uh, and talk through the force like that. So that's pretty weird. Also, it seems that to an extent that these force visions are partly physical as well, because there's a moment where Ray is uh, connected to Kylo and she's, uh, uh, I think, in the rain or she's being splashed by the, the water from the sea. And then at the end of the the forced time, um, Kylo has got water on his glove, which suggests that it's possible to actually physically connect two places. And Kylo even mentions, you know, that, you know, you're not doing, you can't be doing this because the effort would kill you. So it's, there are suggestions that this kind of, um, I don't know, like traveling through, through forced time, or well, force space is is possible. That it's possible to, you know, breach uh, time and space through the force in some way, which is a pretty interesting thing. And it's, you know, um, it's it's quite important that Kylo says uh, you can't be doing this because the effort would kill you, because that seems to suggest that uh, it is known in the Star Wars universe that it's possible to project yourself. Uh, to another location through the force, but that it's extremely um, demanding physically and mentally to do it, and that it, you know, it could kill you. This is interesting because, you know, this tells us this is like a clue as to what happens at the end of the film. Um, so anyway, they keep having these these force visions, this force time. And at the beginning, you know they don't understand what's going on. And uh, Rey at the start is, you know, very angry with Kylo. Uh, she calls him a monster. She she berates him for killing Han Solo, um, and he makes fun of her. He says he, he he makes fun of the fact that she's looking for parental figures everywhere and that she'll never find them. And as these force you know, force time visions occur more and more they kind of grow strangely close to each other mainly because they actually have quite a lot of things in common even though they're on opposite sides you know kylo is you know basically with the bad guys and Ray's with the good guys kylo's on the dark side of the force uh rey we think is on the light side of the force um there it i think the idea is that it's a bit like yin and yang you know that they are they represent the balance or somehow they represent this kind of weird uh, yin and yang relationship in the force where they have things in common and they're, they're sort of somehow interconnected uh, even though they are on opposite sides. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Uh, so, yeah, they, they they sort of start to grow quite close to each other. She's desperate for guidance. He's curious about her force abilities and perhaps he's working out if she is an enemy or perhaps a potential ally they're both alienated from their so-called mentors. Uh, Ray is alienated from Luke who refuses to train her in the, in the way that she expected and she she sort of uh, doesn't quite trust Luke because he's acting so strangely. Uh, Kylo is starting to become alienated from Snoke because he's starting to work out that Snoke is manipulating him and bullying him and just using him for his own advantage. Uh, so they're both alienated from their so-called mentors. Um, and that's bringing them together a bit. It's weird, and I, I didn't know which way this would go. I expected that they would somehow join forces and maybe fight against both Snoke and Luke Skywalker. I thought that's kind of how it might go, that they would end up battling Snoke and Luke. But I didn't believe that Luke would be a real antagonist, so I wasn't sure. But like I said before, there is nothing like watching a Star Wars film when you don't know what's going to happen next, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, So Skywalker does give Rey some lessons in the Force, but his intention is to break down her misconceptions about what the Force is and what the Jedi really are. And I could have had more of this, to be honest. I could have had more training between Luke and Rey. But then again, in the original trilogy, there wasn't that much detail about the Force either. We saw quite a lot of Force training between Yoda and Luke, but even then, in those moments, The Force was still this fairly vague concept. Uh, I think with the Force, uh, the more you explain it, the less interesting it becomes in a way. In The Phantom Menace, there were these things called midichlorians. Remember that? Midichlorians, um, which are living organisms that actually carry the Force. And it was possible to measure scientifically how much force a person had based on their midichlorian count. And because this is physical, this could be genetic and handed down through family connections. But I found that midichlorians as a concept, well, first of all, they were never spoken of again beyond episode one. We never heard anything about midichlorians ever again. I think it's because everyone agreed, well, no, that that somehow takes the magic out of it, doesn't it? So it's just biological, is it? You know, um, the the version of the force that we have here, though, in episode eight is back to how it was in episode four. A mystical energy that binds the galaxy together. And that's it. That's basically it. Uh, it's some it somehow exists in the balance between all things. Pretty vague stuff. And that's fine. You know, again, it serves its purpose. It's just a mystical energy force. Fine. Ray doesn't understand the Force at all. She thinks it's just about controlling people's thoughts and about moving rocks. And this is the sort of childish version of the Force. And Skywalker tells her it's a lot more than that. It's more than just lifting rocks. And uh, he gives a similar version that Obi-Wan gave to him in episode four, that it's this sort of neutral, natural power that exists in the balance between everything. And there are some funny moments where Luke makes fun of her and the way that she misunderstands the nature of the Force. Again, I'm not bothered by the jokey bits because this is Star Wars. This is not Batman the Dark Knight. Uh, One funny moment is when he tells her to reach out and she takes it literally. And see, he means that she should reach out with her feelings, but she literally reaches out with her arm and he tickles it with a piece of grass saying, can you feel that? Yeah, that's the Force. And then he slaps her hand and says, that's not how the Force works, or something like that. Again, this reminds me of training sequences from Kung Fu movies, which have some humour in them and involve the pupil getting it wrong and the master kind of teasing them or punishing them. Then Rey does reach out with the Force. Uh, Sorry, she does reach out to the Force with her feelings, and Luke gives her a little lesson in what it is and how to connect with it. And she kind of goes on this little astral Force journey you know talking about how she feels the nature and all the living things and it's about life and it's about death and and the balance and stuff but then luke is shocked that ray immediately gets pulled towards the dark side which is represented by this weird dark cave under the island and she sort of immediately gets pulled to this place Uh, she gets pulled to the dark and uh the the rock underneath her cracks and she has a weird vision of being covered in water it's pretty strange and luke is shocked that ray didn't resist the dark side he's also shocked at how raw uh, her force power is and that she gets pulled to the dark and he refuses to train her anymore because the last time this happened it all went horribly wrong so he doesn't want to repeat the tragedy that occurred when he uh, trained uh, Uh, Ben Solo. He also attempts to explain to Rey how he lost his faith in the Jedi, how they were wrong and arrogant in assuming that they owned the Force, and how their legacy is failure. In the prequels, the Jedi were blinded by their own arrogance. They didn't see how a powerful Sith was taking control of the Senate right under their noses. Uh, It was a a lack of vision uh, on the on the part of the Jedi. Again, more hubris here, that sense of overconfidence that leads to failure. Uh, the Jedi were too sure of themselves, and somehow that's how they failed. That's why they failed. Or even the, the, the mere existence of the Jedi, sort of purely in the, in the way that the force is all about balance, somehow led to uh, the creation of Darth Vader, um, and maybe even Emperor Palpatine too. I find this pretty interesting, right? A lot of that, a lot of that is true, you know, about the Jedi sort of failing to, uh, to prevent the, the Sith rising again. Uh, I'm not surprised that Luke has gone this way and I find it interesting from a character point of view that he's taken this position. It's actually, it shows some sort of progression, I think, that Luke has kind of, um, uh, gone beyond, um, the Jedi, in a way, which which is you know, it it's, it makes sense to me that he would kind of go on this this journey um, later. I'm I'm not sure when, but we get more information about what happened between Luke and Ben Solo, and uh, so we actually get the story of what went wrong uh, three times, and each time you get a slightly different version of events. First, the first time is what Luke says to Ray initially. He tells her. That when he was training uh, Ben Solo, he sensed growing darkness in him and he went to see him during the night to try and talk to him, I think, to reason with him. But Ben flew into a rage and he pulled down the building on top of Luke's head and then destroyed uh, the Jedi Temple. Uh, I remember in episode seven there were these characters, the Knights of Wren, which I think were other Jedi apprentices that Ben Solo. Kind of recruited to the dark side. We know we don't see anything about the Knights of Ren in this film, which is a bit of a pity because I was looking forward to seeing this band of sort of like bad uh, Jedi. Uh, you know, like these these young Jedi's gone bad. Maybe they'll turn up in, in Episode Nine. I don't know. We'll we'll wait and see. Um, the second version of the story is what Kylo tells Rey during one of their Force Time sessions. He tells her that that Luke didn't give the complete story and that Luke had come with his lightsaber to Ben's room to murder him in his sleep okay this is the the version of events that Kylo gives and we see like a little sort of reenactment of this of Luke um, igniting his lightsaber while standing over Ben who is sleeping with the intention of killing him and then Ben defends himself and then he pulls the, the roof down on Luke and escapes and stuff now, a lot of fans can't handle this. This is another c- crucial thing for some of the fans who don't like the film. A lot of the fans can't handle the idea that Luke would um, would uh, kill uh, a young apprentice, his own nephew, in his sleep, that this is just something that Luke Skywalker ne- would never do because he was just too heroic and stuff. And, you know, they just believe that Luke would never do this and that their childhood is ruined now and all that stuff but it's actually not the final version of events okay i think probably some people got to about halfway through the film and you know this is where the film is is pushing luke further and further uh, uh, away from what he was in the original trilogy but this is the uh, this is the arc we have to push him away in order for him to then ultimately at the end of the film kind of come back and reclaim his status as the legend of Luke Skywalker, but this is like the in a way like the the, the darkest moment where Luke appears to have um, intended to kill his nephew uh, in his bed um, but then we have the third version of the story, which uh, apparently is the true one, and this is what Luke explains to Ray finally, after some crucial moment, he explains to her that it he had become aware of a growing darkness in Ben, and that he struggled with what to do about it. And he went to Ben's room in the night to read Ben's mind. And he did that. And he was so shocked by the darkness that he saw inside Ben Solo, that in a moment of compulsion, he ignited his lightsaber. You know, a split decision. He chose to ignite the lightsaber in order to kill him and rid the galaxy of another possible evil tyrant in order to prevent uh, the rise of another Darth Vader. That's why he did it. But then as soon as he had ignited his lightsaber, he immediately regretted the decision and immediately realized that this would mean killing his nephew, one of his students, in a cowardly way. Imagine that sort of being so shocked by the darkness that he ignited his lightsaber and then immediately thought, no, 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 I can't do that. That's terrible. That's ridiculous. Um, So it was a split second decision and he immediately changed his mind when he realized what he was doing. I think this just gives Luke's character more depth. Remember that he was the last Jedi. Okay. He was, you know, he had to handle all of this kind of thing on his own. And perhaps he'd taken on too much in agreeing to train these young students and in agreeing to train Ben Solo. That's a big job. And perhaps he wasn't really capable of doing it all on his own. And so maybe a split second bad decision is kind of understandable, you know. And yeah, maybe Yoda and Obi-Wan's force ghosts hadn't visited Luke for ages and ages. And so he hadn't had guidance from them. And he started to slip a little bit and he made one little error of judgment for a split second as he said he believed in his own legend and maybe this was his failing he took on too much and ultimately he wasn't able to handle the task of restarting the jedi order on his own taking on his sister's troubled son who was also incredibly powerful in the force but touched by the dark side and was already being manipulated and controlled by snoke through the force it was all too much for one guy so we shouldn't be too shocked that Luke failed, even for a second. I think there is a lesson here, and and that is that success can be very dangerous. In this case, Luke had success uh, in the fact that he had helped to redeem Darth Vader and kill the Emperor at the end of Episode Six. And this kind of success can lead to a false sense of confidence, which can ultimately lead to failure. And there's a lot of that in this film. A lot of um, a lot of failure actually in this film. It's not all heroics. Lots of lots of people failing, which is, I think, what you need for the middle chapter in a story. You know, you need the first chapter in the story establishes the heroes and sets them out on their journey. The middle part is where they, they are challenged and they fail. And then the third part is where they kind of somehow get resolution, you know, and you see that in many, many stories. It's often the way it goes. Yeah. The, the lesson here is that success can be dangerous so, yeah, a lot of that kind of thing in this film, it, it, it is tragic, but at least there's more depth to this than just gymnastic lightsaber duels and being badass for no reason. Anyway, Luke tells us, uh, tells his story of how he immediately changed his mind and he was not going to kill Ben. But then Ben woke up and saw Luke standing over him with his ignited lightsaber. And that's when Ben pulled down the building on top of Luke and destroyed the temple it's a source of a misunderstanding, in fact, that makes Ben think that Luke was really going to kill him when, in fact, he'd already decided not to. In any case, Ben rejects Luke and he then probably gave his allegiance to Snoke more fully. Uh, Luke again tells Ray to get off the island because he's gone there to die and, and so on. And this pushes Rey closer to Kylo, who is the only one who seems to understand her. Will she turn to the dark side to be with him? Will he turn good to be with her? Um... Uh, you know no idea i'm not sure of the chronol uh, i'm not sure of the chronology here i might be getting some of the events here a, a little bit wrong at one point ray visits the dark cave like luke does in the empire strikes back and this is a really cool and spooky sequence where she seems to see herself trapped in time Like she sort of seems to be trapped in a weird timeline inside this weird magic cave. Or perhaps it's just her reflection repeated again and again and again. But she follows this line of reflections until she's face to face with a mirror. And she's convinced that this mirror will reveal the truth that she's been looking for. Her parents. And she stands in front of the mirror, and a dark figure approaches her in the reflection. And we wonder, who is it? Is it Luke? Is it Snoke? Is it Han? Leia? Is it another figure from Star Wars lore? In the end, she finds herself staring at her own reflection. Now, what does this mean? I guess it means that she's on her own, and her parents just aren't that important. Or maybe it's just a question of her coming face to face with herself, and really her ultimate journey is to know herself. And that she's on her own, and that she shouldn't expect, uh, you know, uh, her parents to provide some big answer to the question of who she is. That she's just Ray, and and that's it. And that that um, maybe her heroism or her power comes from herself rather than her having to be part of some family uh, line, you know. Um, also at some point here, Luke decides to reconnect with the force. Not sure exactly when this happens, but at uh, at some key moment he decided, he decides to reconnect with the force. He sits on this stone altar on the clifftop and he meditates and he reaches out into the force. I think he makes a connection with Leia who is still in her coma. Uh, I think this is where Luke realizes a lot of things, but it's actually not shown in the film. We don't see, um, the moment where he sort of realises lots of things and sort of snaps back into, um, into realising a lot of stuff. That's not shown. It's, it's implied in the way that he reconnects with Leia. And by reconnecting with the Force here, I think he gets strength from his renewed connection with Leia. He realises that there is something that he can do. And basically, by reconnecting with the Force, he realises his power and perhaps his hope again, or realises the importance of Ray or something. I'm not sure. So, Ray and Kylo have another forced time. Again, they're getting closer and closer to each other all the time. I think in this one, Kylo is topless, uh, which kind of amps up the sexual tension between them and Rey seems to believe in Kylo more than she does in Luke at this point, and she probably believes that she can turn him to the light side of the Force, but we still don't really know how Kylo feels. He's hard for us to read. He's just blank and unreadable, which is a strength in terms of the acting performance. He could be a bit vulnerable, maybe a bit lost, you know, a bit like Rey, but he could also be just pure evil. We don't really know. They actually touch at one point, in their forced time. And when they do this, Luke bursts into Rey's hut and is shocked to discover them in contact. And he destroys the hut and he breaks the connection. And then there's this sort of fight between Rey and Luke, a stick fight. They, they fight. It's like a lightsaber fight, but with sticks. Um, uh, Rey demands to know if Luke really did try to kill Kylo and she attacks him with her staff. And Luke defends himself with a stick and he disarms her, and to me this this looks like he's still training her when he and when they fight with the sticks he's he's def- he defends himself he manages to avoid her strikes he never actually strikes out against her he's just defensive uh, but he does disarm her and when he disarms her she force grabs the blue lightsaber and appears to have beaten Luke who kind of falls to the ground but I, I think I think when he falls. It's quite interesting because he doesn't actually land on the ground. I think he he kind of uses the force to prevent himself from hitting the floor. He floats for a moment. I'm not quite sure what happens here. But I think him falling back and then using the force to protect himself, this is again another example of how he's reconnecting with the force. But it appears that, that, that Ray has got the upper hand on Luke or that she's beaten him. I don't think so. Um... I think if if you watch closely, either he's he's sort of using the force to prevent himself from falling or his hand is raised. And I think this could mean that he he, he was about to summon his green lightsaber. And he could have cu- summoned that green lightsaber whenever he wanted in order to defend himself. I think that he let Ray get the better of him. This is my understanding of it anyway. And this is when they talk then and he confesses that he he did momentarily. is this when he does this i don't know but at some point he confesses that he did momentarily contemplate killing ben but that he instantly changed his mind so just to set the record straight on this luke was not going to kill ben in his sleep the idea flashed across his mind when he saw that snoke had turned him to the dark side but he instantly changed his mind i say that and that's important to, to state because a lot of the hardcore fans have lost faith in this film because they thought luke was going to murder a child in his sleep he wasn't and anyway ben at this point wasn't a child. Rey then decides to leave the island in order to go to Kylo because she believes that she can turn him. And Luke says, no, 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 this won't go the way that you think. It's a bit like that moment in The Empire Strikes Back when Luke goes to uh, confront Vader, but Yoda tells him he's not ready yet. Rey is delivered uh, to Kylo Ren in an escape pod from the Millennium Millennium Falcon. And then we get one of my favourite moments in the film, uh, uh kylo kind of uh, meets ray as she is uh, pulled into i guess the supremacy this big uh, first order uh, ship kylo meets her ray is put in handcuffs and on the way to snoke's throne room they have a conversation and she explains that she's confident that kylo will turn to the light because she's had a vision about him but kylo explains that he's also had a vision that ray will turn to the dark and we were kind of thinking what's going to happen is you know who who's going to turn to the light and who's going to turn to the dark i had no idea what was going to happen next i suspected that kylo would turn to the light because there was more evidence for it i didn't really believe that ray would turn to the dark side but there were a few things that suggested that she could for example that she was drawn to the dark side during her vision while training with luke that she seemed to sort of powered by anger sometimes when she fights. She's pretty impulsive. She she often strikes out in anger, it seems. And that's why that that's often the way towards the dark side, isn't it? Then the doors open and Rey meets Snoke for the first time. Meanwhile, I think this is when Luke goes to destroy the Force tree and the ancient Jedi texts. He kind of approaches the tree with a, a flame and he's going to burn down the tree and destroy the texts, I think because he's convinced that it's time for the Jedi to end. And Yoda then appears as a force ghost and stops him. And it's wonderful to see Yoda again in the film. It's not CGI Yoda. It's puppet Yoda. Um, puppet Yoda, you know, uh, like, uh, like in the original trilogy when Yoda was a puppet, um, I think created by Jim Henson's workshop, the same people who created the Muppets, you know like Kermit the frog and and Miss Piggy and and, and all that lot uh that was the uh, company the workshop that created uh Yoda uh Yoda's actually a muppet in fact um and so we see uh, puppet Yoda as a force ghost which is actually it was wonderful it was really heartwarming to see Yoda And they actually used the original mold from Return of the Jedi. So when they made the puppet for Yoda in Episode 6, they used a a mold. And I think they probably made Yoda out of polyurethane or something. And um, apparently for Episode uh, 8, this film... They used the original mold uh, for the puppet. So it's, it's basically exactly the same puppet that they used in Return of the Jedi. And it really works, you know, because the puppet version is much better than the CGI version. Uh, it looks a lot more real and, and charming. And basically, Yoda tells Luke that all of this is a lesson and that Luke, um, you know, Luke is learning a valuable lesson. That he is a good master because he's teaching Ray the value of failure. And, you know, Yoda says the greatest. Uh, what is it? The greatest teacher failure is, you know, like failure is the greatest teacher. Apparently, Yoda still hasn't perfected his grammar, despite failing to speak it correctly for probably about 900 years. So failure hasn't really taught Yoda a thing or two about grammar. But anyway, I think it's a good lesson and it brings some redemption to Luke, who feels like he's lost. He feels like he's a lost cause But Yoda appearing at this crucial point kind of makes Luke realize that it's not all lost and that he's just learning a lesson in failure and that he can teach Ray uh, something important here. Everyone has to fail and it's your failures that help you to improve. Uh, Success can bring overconfidence and arrogance sometimes, whereas failure and accepting your failures brings us opportunities to learn. And of course, it's true for learning English isn't it? Our failures are great learning opportunities. We have to say something wrong a few times before we can say it correctly. Um, Expecting to get everything right first time is just unrealistic. If you accept failure as the best way to learn and not something to be ashamed of, you can overcome your problems and then learn to be really strong. Yoda then destroys the force tree and apparently the sacred Jedi texts. Um, using lightning, he just summons lightning to to d- destroy the force tree. And apparently, force ghosts can do that now. They can interact with the real world. Okay, fine. Uh, and he he says to you to Luke, "Yes, you're right. Let's destroy the past and start again." And Luke is shocked that Yoda has done this. Uh, the tree burns, containing apparently containing the the sacred Jedi texts. And Luke says, "But Master Yoda, the sacred Jedi texts." And Yoda says, read them? Have you? Page turners, they are not. Uh, and I laughed out loud at this idea that Yoda saying, well, have you read the the Jedi texts? They're not exactly page turners, are they? Um, a page turner is a book that's really easy to read and enjoyable to read. So he's saying these Jedi texts are just, it's just dogma. It's just kind of... Um, it's just dogma, and and really, the 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 real lesson is with the is with you and Ray, and these are the important people, and it's the experiences that you can pass on to her. It's the things that you can show her uh, in your actions that will make the difference. Um, okay, so we've got two lessons uh, from Yoda to Luke here: failures are valuable learning experiences, and students always grow beyond their masters. And um, yeah, so anyway, we now go. I'm now going to go back to Snoke's room, where Rey has been delivered there by by Kylo Ren. So Snoke reads Rey's mind, and he kind of plays around with her. She attempts to fight back several times. She grabs her lightsaber uh, using the Force, but Snoke makes it fly around the room, and it hits the hits her on the back of the head. He's such a he's such a a twat, uh, Snoke. He's uh, he's a bully, and he's he's just he's cruel. Um, she she also grabs Kylo Ren's lightsaber at some point, in order to attack. And Snoke, in response, flings her around the room using the Force. He seems impressed with her tenacity, and he actually says, "I can't believe it," but he actually says the line, "Such spunk," which made me laugh because, well, the word spunk. Do you know what do you know what spunk means? It's a bit rude, to be honest. Uh, here are two definitions of the word spunk. Uh, So, the one definition of spunk means courage, bravery, or strength of character. Uh, So, if you have you've got a lot of spunk, kid, means you know you've got a lot of bravery, you've got a lot of heart. But the other meaning of the word spunk is an offensive meaning, and it means semen. You know, Uh, yeah, the stuff that hmm, the stuff that is ejaculated out of the end of a penis during. Uh, orgasm, semen. Yeah, so spunk has got two meanings. It means bravery or courage, or it means that ejaculate stuff that comes out of the end of a of a willy. Mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know. But Snoke says, yeah, such spunk, which is pretty <laughs> pretty creepy. He means definition one, of course. He means courage, bravery, strength of character. This is the old-fashioned meaning of the word. But it's still a bit creepy that Snoke, this horrible, weird, creepy, uh, scarred thing, gleefully talks about spunk. Snoke is a horrible, creepy old git, basically. He's also really arrogant, and he's very wealthy. He wears a gold robe, a bit like Hugh Hefner, the playboy guy. He's horrible, but the CGI motion capture is brilliant. He looks really realistic, they did a great job on Snoke. Good job, Andy Circus and the special effects team who, who you know, m- created Snoke. Snoke then reads Rey's mind. I think he was considering whether she could be turned to the dark side, perhaps to become his apprentice and replacement for Kylo, because that's often the way it goes. Uh, we saw the same thing in Return of the Jedi, the Emperor sort of... Um, uh, putting luke skywalker up against vader i think the emperor probably was thinking uh that if luke was turned out to be more powerful than vader that luke could be uh, the emperor's new apprentice you know that thing and it's it seems to be the same thing that's going on here that i think snoke is trying to decide which one he he wants to keep as his apprentice if he thinks that ray uh could be corrupted that you know she could be a better apprentice than kylo ren um But he reads her mind and he sort of summarises that she can't be turned. She's too pure or something. So he decides that Kylo should kill her, perhaps to finally complete his training. Meanwhile, Kylo Ren looks at the situation quite blankly, except for subtle reactions and the movement of his eyes. And it reminds me of how Vader observed the Emperor when he was attempting to turn Luke to the dark side. We suspected that Vader was loyal in his heart to Luke. Similarly, I suspect that Kylo Ren actually has started to hate Snoke and he feels resentment towards how manipulative he is. And we suspect that Kylo has feelings for Rey or at least believes that Rey might join him somehow. I wonder if this is a romantic feeling or a strategic one. I don't know. Snoke orders Kylo to kill Rey and we still don't know what Kylo is thinking. Rey looks up at him and simply says, Ben. Sort of she pleads, to, uh, appealing to his good side. And at this point, Snoke gets really carried away, proclaiming that he can re- he can see Kylo's thoughts and that Kylo, he can see that Kylo is turning his lightsaber and he's going to ignite it in order to kill his true enemy. But secretly, Kylo is using the force to turn Luke Skywalker's lightsaber, which is sitting on the table next to Snoke. And as Snoke is convinced that he's seeing Kylo's intentions to kill Rey... Perhaps he's not seeing it clearly. And in fact, Kylo ignites Luke's lightsaber on the table, killing Snoke. This is quite interesting because Kylo is turning his lightsaber in his hand, pointing it at Ray, but also he's using the force to turn Luke Skywalker's lightsaber at the same time. And maybe Snoke is sort of reads it wrong. And he sees a lightsaber turning, but he doesn't realise which one it is. And. And Kylo ignites Luke's Luke's lightsaber, killing Snoke from a distance. And I found this really surprising and satisfying. The look on Snoke's face when he gets stabbed by the lightsaber. He's so shocked. It's also a really well-directed sequence. The lightsaber stabs Snoke in the side and then we see the scene from Kylo's point of view and Kylo pulls the saber towards him through the air, cutting Snoke in half. And the ignited saber flies through the air and then Ray's hand comes up to grab it in midair. And Ray then stands up with the lightsaber in her hand. And uh, Ben or Kylo has, the light, has his lightsaber and he ignites that. And for a moment, Kylo and Ray face each other. And we wonder whether Kylo is going to attack her or what will happen. And then everything goes in slow motion as Ray and Kylo are attacked by the eight Praetorian guards, these red guards. And they fight back on the same side against the guards. And this is an absolutely wicked sequence. This is brilliant. This may be the best part of the film maybe one of the best sequences in the film it could be one of the best star wars moments that we've ever had uh, ray and kylo fighting on the same side against these eight uh, praetorian guards the guards are fantastic they wear this weird red armor which appears to be able to deflect some lightsaber blows they also have different weapons they have swords and staffs and a kind of whip thing that becomes a sword and it all happens incredibly quickly and it's it's directed really well you see uh, like an, a number of different bits of action happening on the screen at the same time, the screen is filled with several fights. Sparks fly. Ray screams and roars as she fights. Kylo's fighting style is brutal and sketchy, and it's just raw power, and it's brilliant. There's even a moment where Ray, uh, like, um, sort of leans back on Kylo Ren in order to use him as a platform so she can kick. One of the guards you know they 're working in in symbiosis with each other It's a really interesting moment where the light and dark sides of the force are sort of working together it's 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 really cool and at one point the wall catches fire I think when some one of the guards' heads is chopped off and it goes flying and hits the wall and the wall the wall catches fire and in the middle of the fight, the room starts burning down um, and uh, w- one of the guards gets thrown into some kind of Fan unit and gets chopped up into pieces. It all happens incredibly quickly and intensely. Uh, Ray also has some good moves. Again, I don't know how she learned to fight like this. Let's just say that growing up on a rough junk planet like Jakku meant that she had to learn how to defend herself. Add that to the fact that she she's obviously gifted with the with force abilities and has had some lightsaber fighting experience. Now she's also brave and intelligent. That's good enough for me. the, the two of them manage to fight um, off the guards and defeat them, but it's not easy. Uh, and, you know, either of them could have been killed. At one point, it looks like they've been beaten. Kylo is unarmed. He's, he's dropped his lightsaber. Ray is held by one of the guards, but she manages to get out of this grip by dropping her lightsaber, sort of releasing her hand, catching the saber again in midair before dispatching the guard in, in pretty impressive fashion. Kylo, though, is still being held uh, by the last guard who's kind of strangling him and he's unarmed. And Ray quickly throws her her lightsaber across the room to Kylo, who catches it and ignites it instantly, sending the beam of the lightsaber through the guard's face who drops away dead. And what I like about this moment is that Kylo catches the lightsaber, ignites it kills the guard lets the guard drop and steps forward and he never takes his eye eyes off Ray at any point he make he keeps eye contact with Ray all the way through this movement and it's really intense and it also shows that his you know he's focused all his attention on her and he kills this guard uh, almost as a second thought and we still don't really know what Kylo is thinking because now he's got the blue lightsaber as well so um, so then, still staring intensely at Ray, he steps forward. Ray tells him that there isn't that there, there's still time, and that they can save the Resistance. She assumes that he's turned good, but he hasn't. He tells Ray that they should let the past die and they should start anew. Kill Snoke, kill Skywalker, let the Resistance die, uh, and you know he wants to kind of he's he's basically saying to her, "Join me, and we'll rule the galaxy." Is what I don't know. Boyfriend and girlfriend, or uh, I don't know, but he's saying, Join me and we'll rule the galaxy together. And Ray is sort of heartbroken because this isn't really how she saw it going. And she says, Ben, don't do this. She's so disappointed. He also, at this point, tells her who her parents are. I think he saw this in a vision. I think either he knows it because he's seen it in a force vision or he's lying and manipulating her. I'm not sure which one it is. But he tells her the truth. He says that they were junk traders who just sold her off as a slave. They were like alcoholics or junkies who sold her as a slave just so they could get money. And now they're dead and they're buried in the desert and he says to her, "You're nobody. You're nothing. But not to me." So this is very I think this is a very manipulative thing to say. Saying With, you know, in one sentence, you're nothing. And then in the next sentence, saying, but you're not nothing to me. So this is the same kind of manipulative behavior that we saw from Snoke towards uh, Kylo before. And he begs Ray to join her, but she's heartbroken by what Ben is doing and she won't do it. She refuses. She sees that Kylo is now beyond redemption at this point. I think Kylo has crossed a line by killing Snoke. I mean, that was a great. I love the way Snoke uh, was killed. And I thought, you know, good, because he was a horrible git, wasn't he, Snoke? But I think Kylo has crossed a line, and he's now the new Snoke. And all these changes of position happen really fast. Surely this is the interesting part of this film, or one of the more interesting parts. And I can't really understand how all these angry haters didn't enjoy this sequence. I thought it was amazing. and You know, what is really going on in Kylo's head? Will Will he... go bad, ultimately? Or is there still some good in him? In Return of the Jedi, we have similar questions about Darth Vader, and ultimately he turns good. But in this one, Kylo doesn't. He's definitely the bad guy. He wants to kill her friends, and he's being very manipulative. He might be lying about her parents, even though she says that she's always known about this deep down that they abandoned her. Maybe he's lying or something. Maybe it's true. Perhaps we'll see in the next episode. Or perhaps her lineage... Isn't important, and it just doesn't matter what your family connections are anymore in this universe. That you don't have to be from a certain bloodline in order to be force sensitive. uh, At this point, she decides that um, she's going to try and grab the lightsaber, so she uses the force to grab Luke's lightsaber from Kylo, and. The lightsaber ends up suspended in midair between them as they both struggle to grab it, and the lightsaber then explodes. And then in the f- in the film, this part of the story, uh, this part of the story is told in parallel with the other parts, which I haven't mentioned yet, namely the Finn and Rose storyline and the Poe Admiral Holdo storyline. So I need I'm really talking far too much about star wars here Uh, some of you will be enjoying this but you know i I don't want to go on too long but i've got loads of other things to say i haven't finished talking about the storyline yet let's just keep trucking okay so what about the finn and rose storyline so finn is going to escape um uh the 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 resistance ship and go and find ray he's found the tracking device that Leia was using to to keep uh track of ray's location uh, now that Leia is in a coma, Finn's got the tracking device, and he thinks I'm going to go and find Ray. Enough of this. I'm leaving. I'm going to go and try and find Ray. Rose stops him. She's an engineer who works in one of the one of the parts of the spaceship, and she she has already had to stop a number of people escaping, like cowardly escaping from the uh, uh, from the the resistance ships. Uh, she she stops Finn. I mean, when she first meets him, she seems impressed that he is the uh, the famous Finn. And she seems kind of like in awe of him and stuff. And, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting that Finn has become sort of almost a legend of, of his own. But um, uh, she's sort of disappointed to discover that Finn is, is leaving. And this is part of Finn's character arc that he starts out as a traitor, that he's someone who just is always running away. Um, and I think in this, um, in this part of the story, Finn really learns ha- what um, loyalty really means. And w- and why people fight. And so he, he, he stops running away. He becomes more of a hero at this point. I think that's the point of this part of the story. Um, and so anyway, Finn and Rose kind of hook up together and they, they work out together in a fairly cheesy way. Uh, you know, by sort of coming to the same conclusion at the same time, that the hyperspace tracking that the First Order is using to to keep, keep track of uh, the Resistance ships, uh, that this hyperspace tracking can be stopped if they disarm it from the lead First Order ship. And Finn has, like, some intel on the location of the tracker, uh, because, remember, he used to be in the First Order. And so they work out that if they can get into that ship, uh, if they can sort of... Um, Um, sneak into the ship and find the tracking device and disable it, they can save the Resistance. And, you know, it must be a a suicide mission. Uh, But anyway, uh, they go and see Poe Dameron, who agrees, and they call Maz Kanata for more information. Maz Kanata, I'm not convinced that she's a great character. I think she's a bit crap, really. She's a sort of vague orange Yoda who isn't as interesting as Yoda. But anyway, um, she kind of tells them... Uh, That they can, um, yeah, a complex and contrived plot is set up where Finn and Rose have to meet a code breaker who can help them access Snoke's ship. Um, And uh, is it Snoke's ship or another ship? I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, so the the plot is they have to go to this place, find a code breaker who will help them get onto Snoke's ship, um, and then they can disable the hyperspace tracking, saving the resistance. Okay, so they head to this place, which is called Canto Bight. And, as they're on their way there, I don't know. They managed to sneak sneak out uh, without the first order seeing them. Yeah, I know. Um, but anyway, on on the way to Canto Byte, Rose tells Finn you know i hate this place it's full of the worst type of people which is a sort of a call back to uh, that moment in episode 4 when uh, obi-wan kenobi and luke skywalker head to moss isley and obi-wan says you know we must be careful it's a it's a hive of scum and villainry. you know it's the the worst kind of people are here and moss isley is full of like low life scum um you know uh low life criminals and things but here Uh, rose when she says the worst type of people actually she means like rich people uh these kind of high society rich people uh and uh, a, a different type of uh awful person in this case it's like a gambling resort it's a bit like monaco or something so all these people are super rich and they spend their their time gambling and uh and sort of um it's very hedonistic and stuff. So that's quite interesting. That uh, you know, it, it's a bit like Moss Iceland, but the upper uh, class version of it, or something. Um, so anyway, they they park their spaceship on the beach, which is, seems to be a bad move. The, it kind of attracts the attention of the local police. But these kids, you know, Rose and Finn, they don't really know what they're doing. Um, and you know, there's no way this this mission's going to work. Surely. Uh, anyway, we see, uh, the casino on Canto Bite, and it's a bit like the cantina bar from Moss Eisley with all these weird characters and things, but instead of it being all low life, everyone's rich and it's very high society. Um, there are also these weird horse things on, on a racetrack. And, uh, we discover that these horses are being looked, they're, they're being mistreated. They get whipped and stuff and, and they're, and they're looked after by these slave children so there's this, this other sort of um, uh, subtext going on here that, of these, these the mistreatment of animals and children in, in different parts of the galaxy. Rose hates uh, this place uh, because of the way the animals and children are mistreated. Um, there's a funny little moment with this little drunk, Gambling, gambling creature who thinks that BB-8 is a gambling machine, and he keeps like inserting coins inside BB-8. That's kind of funny, and it gets there's a payoff later when BB-8 uses all those coins as ammunition. He kind of uses it as like a railgun, rail gun, firing the the coins out at a at a bad guy. Uh, and Rose and Finn, of course, they get caught and thrown in jail because they 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 parked their their spaceship in the wrong place, and they they fail to meet up with the. Um, a code breaker, and they're kind of in this jail cell, you know, talking about what they're going to do. And then Benicio del Toro's character turns up in the film, and he's great. He's he's um he plays the part of this seedy, mist, you know, untrustworthy. Uh, sketchy character who is able to pick any lock and somehow he knows the codes to get them into this um, this special room on the first order ship he 's a generally untrustworthy, shady character. And I love Benicio Del Toro as an actor. I've always liked him in films. He's an engaging screen presence, to quote Mark Kermode. And um, so Benicio Del Toro's character, who's called DJ, overhears Finn and Rose discussing their plan, and he says that he can get them in the room on the First Order ship. And they don't really believe him, but somehow... He has a way to pick the lock on the jail cell and get out. And with BB-8's help, they get away. And so do Finn and Rose, who, in the end, escape on the horses from the horse track um, uh, with the help of a couple of slave kids and... Um, who decide to help them when they realize that they're with the resistance. And so they escape on these horses, which smash up the casino resort before finally being released into the forest. This is a slightly cheesy moment, and it feels a bit like a, a kind of a message about animal cruelty. But, you know, I love animals. And, you know, so fair enough. You know, um, what's wrong with a, a message about animal cruelty? It's, it's, it's quite Disney. That's the thing. It's it's not the sort of thing we've had in Star Wars before. It's, it's more of a Disney-type thing. You know, the, like these cute animals uh, that get released back into the wild. Anyway, DJ turns up in a ship with BB-8, and Finn and Rose get rescued, and they all of them fly towards the First Order ship for their mission, which is to go and und- uh, undercover and turn off the hyperspace tracking, while the Resistance are still running away from the First Order and slowly running out of fuel, in the same way that I am now running out of time here in this mammoth episode of Luke's English Podcast. DJ is an interesting character. He's one of those ones who exist in the moral grey area between the good and bad sides, a bit like Boba Fett and even Han Solo at the start of episode four, who only cares. If you remember at the beginning of episode four, Han Solo didn't really care about you know, the, the, the rebels and the empire. He just cared about money and, and saving himself. Uh, and I, you know, I like these ambiguous characters in Star Wars. Star Wars, and I think DJ's character gives some much needed moral ambiguity to the film. Also, he shows us that uh, the rich people on Canto Bike, these gamblers, make all their money uh, by making and selling weapons. Um uh, they sell their weapons to the First Order and to the Resistance. And this adds a bit of complexity to the whole intergalactic war thing, which underpins this whole series of films and just shows that there's more to this than just good guys versus bad guys. There's also a whole industry behind these wars that makes some people really rich. And I think that for some fans, this is a bit too political for Star Wars, which is ironic considering how politics were involved so much in the prequel films, so it's not like uh, we've never had politics in Star Wars before. But anyway, I think that uh, it's just interesting, don't you think? That this this whole idea that you know there are people making money from these uh, these wars that are always going on, uh, and that there's more to it than just good guys versus bad guys. There are actually people profiting from all of this. Um, they they make it onto the supremacy, uh, this first order ship, and they go undercover. BB-8 disguises himself as one of those little black droids. I think they're called mouse droids. He disguises himself as one of those things. You know those droids that go... You know those things? You know what I mean. So he disguises himself as one of those by hiding under a black dustbin, as far as I can see. And amazingly, nobody really notices them, including Finn, who surely is a famous traitor among the First Order soldiers by now. Uh, I say that nobody notices them. Actually, an evil black version of BB-8 does notice them. I love this evil BB-8. He's actually called BB-9E. Yeah, I don't know why. And it's interesting just how just a few changes in the design makes this little droid instantly evil looking. Like BB-8 is white and, you know, orange and he's got a round head and just the design of him makes him appealing and cute and and good-natured. BB9E is black and silver with a slightly more angular head and a red eye in the centre of his head, and uh, it's interesting how that Im- instantly makes him evil. I think I heard Mark Hamill talking about this in an interview and just saying that just a few changes just to make the droid black with a different shaped head and it just screams Nazi, and it does. It does look. It looks like a Nazi version of BB8. Also, they managed to um, endow BB-9E with a lot of menace and malice. He he looks evil. His, he has this red eye, and the red eye somehow manages to narrow with suspicion when he sees Rose, Finn, DJ and BB-8. So BB-9E, I think, clocks them uh, and realises there's something funny going on here. Cut a long story short. Yeah, this is the short version of the, of it. Um, I think this this double episode is actually longer than the film itself. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe you could listen to this while you're watching episode eight on Blu-ray when it comes out. Anyway, uh, they get to the tracker and it turns out that DJ has set them up. He's he's betrayed them and he betrays the entire resistance and their plan to escape to create uh, the, the salt planet uh DJ has betrayed them because the, the the First Order offered him loads of money. So we were suspicious about DJ and it turned out our suspicions were correct because he does betray everyone. Finn gets very angry and calls him a traitor, I think, or something like that. And, uh, you know, like, oh, they're the bad guys. And DJ says something interesting. He says something along the lines of, well, good guys, bad guys, what's the difference? They blow you up today. You blow them up the next time. And I find his cynicism and pragmatism to be refreshing and interesting in the context of this binary good guys versus bad guys conflict. This is a really enjoyable bit of ambiguity, and I really hope we see Benicio del Toro's character again. Perhaps the most interesting moments in all Star Wars uh, are all of Star Wars are the moments when there's moral ambiguity, like the character of Boba Fett, who is only interested in self-preservation and money, or the moments when Luke Skywalker appears to drift towards the dark side slightly in order to achieve things, uh, specifically when defeating Darth Vader, or when Anakin Vader goes dark and and then light again at the end. These are interesting moments you know of of moving between good and bad or the gray area in between i think dj is an example of that so dj is one of my new favorite characters so finn and rose are caught and the resistance are screwed some people complain that the Rin, that the Rin and Foes know that the Finn and Rose storyline doesn't achieve anything, but that's the whole point. It's just another lesson in failure. Sometimes characters fail in films. It's boring if they just succeed every single time. And anyway, the Resistance were always the underdogs, and Finn and Rose were never going to succeed with this impossible mission anyway. It was just a suicide mission, and they're lucky that they got this far. Anyway, back to what's happening with the Resistance fleet. Leia is in a coma. Uh, Admiral Holdo takes over. Poe disagrees with her strategy, which appears to be just to jump ship and escape the fleet. He thinks it won't work and it's cowardly. He attempts a mutiny, but he gets stunned by Leia, um, who has uh, come back from her coma. She uses a blaster, which is set to stun. We haven't seen uh, a blaster set to stun since episode 4, and so we get the blue rings firing out rather than a red or green laser. Um, turns out that Holdo's plan is not just to escape the ship, but to evacuate to a nearby planet that they've been heading for. And Poe wasn't aware of this because he was, he was demoted. They didn't tell him because he's been demoted. And they plan to escape to crate uh, where there's an old rebel base and they can use that as a defensive fortress and can uh, call for support from around the galaxy just as well really isn't it that because Finn and Rose's mission has failed um, then we discover that DJ has has told the first order about this plan to evacuate to Crate and the first order begin attacking the escape vehicles as they head down towards Crate the resistance is really screwed now Finn and Rose's mission to stop the hyperspace tracking has failed and now the first order know about the other plan to escape to Crate and blowing up the escape transports. Also at this moment, it looks like Rey is about to be executed by Kylo Ren. Um, Finn and Rose are about to be executed too by Captain Phasma and her her, her her minions. Oh yeah, and Captain Phasma has turned up now again too. Apparently she didn't die in episode seven. Uh, I quite like Captain Phasma in the sense that she looks cool, but I haven't really seen her doing anything that that interesting yet. And she doesn't really do anything, does she, in Star Wars, except generally being Finn's nemesis. I hope we see more from her. Uh, Leia and the rest of the resistance have boarded the escape transports to Krait, but Holdo stays with the main fleet. And when she realises that the escape transports are being attacked, she suddenly decides to sacrifice herself and aims the Radus, that's the, the big uh, resistance ship, at the Supremacy, which I think is Snoke's ship, and she goes into hyperspace, poof, and wow, this is a really mind-blowing moment, and it's done really well, because the Radus enters hyperspace and flies at light speed through the Supremacy and a bunch of other First Order ships, causing massive damage to the First Order fleet, and a huge explosion, and it's done instantly and in total silence. Just, you know, it just you just see this ship going, flying through the, the fleet, and it's all in total silence. Are a few seconds of silence followed by a really cool sound effect like boom, something like that it's silence used to to great effect and the explosion on the supremacy gives finn and rose the chance to avoid being executed and they fight back against captain phasma and the stormtroopers while the whole hangar bay explodes around them there are tie fighters falling on the floor and blowing up at-at walkers crashing here and there and stuff And in the midst of all this chaos, Finn and Phasma have a battle, and Finn fights with a lot of spirit. Uh, Rose shoots Phasma, but the blast deflects off her armour, which is a cool moment, so it turns out that Captain Phasma's silver armour can deflect blaster bolts. Uh, Phasma appears to have the upper hand in the fight, and she knocks Finn into a... A lift shaft like a hole in the in the in the ground but clearly captain phasma hasn't seen the original star wars trilogy because we know that there are moving platforms that go up and down inside these shafts and of course finn hasn't fallen to his death he reappears and smashes phasma in the face cracking her mask and she says like you'll always be scum before falling into an explosion it seems i doubt that she's dead she's bound to come back next time i think that's what they're going to do with this character um She calls him scum and rebel scum. This is the default insult for rebels or resistance fighters, it seems. Scum is, by the way, a a dirty layer, a layer of dirt that floats on the top of old water or something. You know, um, imagine sort of an old stagnant pool of water. It might have like a dirty layer on the top of it. That's scum. So it's just a generic insult that you could say to someone, are you scumbag or you're just, you, you, you know, you're scum. You are. It's a generic insult, but it was used once in Return of the Jedi when an Imperial officer said it to Han Solo and it sounded cool. So now uh, the word is used a lot by you know First Order people against resistance people, you know, rebel scum or you're, you're just scum. These films still trade a lot on nostalgia for the old films. And to be honest, it works. Finn and Rose managed to escape the burning ship. How? Well, they're rescued by BB-8 driving an ATST saint Scout Walker thing. Which, when I saw that in the cinema, I actually went, yeah, right, out loud in the cinema. Because, I mean, it's ridiculous. BB-8 driving a, a, a Scout Walker. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a bit much. People complain that Rey's character in Star Wars is too perfect, and they complain that she's too perfect, she can do anything, and that this is unrealistic and unfair, and it's some sort of feminist agenda or something. But look at BB-8, and in fact R2-D2 for that matter. BB-8 is also a perfect character who seems to be able to do anything, right? He takes out First Order guards uh, by shooting coins at them. I'm not sure they're first order guards. He takes out some guards by shooting coins at them. He can pilot an ATST Walker. He can get blown up and assemble himself again. He can fix any problem on an X-wing. But no one complains that it's like some sort of robotist agenda. No, they don't. So there are loads of characters who who are perfect in films, uh, and you know. So I don't think it's that bad that Ray appears to be a bit sort of flawless. Um, anyway, so. At this point, the storylines come together. The Resistance, that's Leia, Poe, and a few other remaining people, make it down to Crate and they set up their base there. God knows why it takes the First Order so long to, to attack them here, but it does. Maybe they needed a bit of time to set up all that awesome weaponry that they're going to use to smash through this big door to this old Rebel base where the Resistance are now hiding. Finn and Rose escape the Supremacy with BB-8 and join the Resistance on Crate. The idea is that the Resistance can defend themselves here, call for help, and then wait for the help to arrive the thing is they call for help and no help comes none of their allies out in space care there's no lando calrissian or anyone like that nobody's coming to help them so it's about a couple of hundred resistance members versus the entire first order with their huge 80 m6 walkers these big gorilla walkers Uh, So uh, the Resistance have trenches in this salt planet with some defensive weapons and this huge reinforced door protecting them and a few very sketchy looking ground sort of fighters like these, um, I don't know what they're, ground fighters and that's it. The First Order have a massive battering ram cannon, which is apparently Death Star technology. Basically, a smaller version of the Death Star's big green laser that can blow up planets, and this is what they're going to use to break through the door. The idea is that the Resistance need to somehow destroy the cannon if they stand a chance of survive surviving. Now, what about Ray? Last time we saw her, she was locked in a tug of war with Kylo Ren over Luke's blue lightsaber, which was caught in the middle between the two of them and then explodes. Apparently, uh, Kylo was knocked out by the explosion and Rey managed to escape in Snoke's personal ship, I think, and she took the fragments of the lightsaber with her. We see Snoke's dead body, his tongue sticking out. He's lying on the floor. He's definitely dead. Also, both his hands were cut off when Kylo killed him. This is a pretty neat detail because someone always gets their hand or hands removed in Star Wars films. In this case, it was Snoke, but he, uh, in both his hands, but he also lost the whole top half of his body as well. I wonder if we will ever find out Snoke's backstory, but I guess that We just never learned the Emperor's backstory in Star Wars in the original films. Uh, You know, he was just a powerful old dark side user and that's it. I think we probably knew more about him than Snoke, though. And I admit that we could have used just a little bit more exposition about Snoke. Just a bit of detail might have helped to fill that blank. I think the hardcore fans are very upset about this because they spent two years coming up with very elaborate theories about Snoke's origin, like, for example, he's Mace Windu who's come back from the dead or he's Darth Plagueis, the the Emperor's old master. It seems that, in fact, in the end, Snoke's not that important and that Ryan Johnson doesn't really care about all the fan theories. And anyway, we don't always need an origin story for everyone, do we? I expect there will be a book about Snoke coming out or whatever, so we'll probably find out more details in the future. Then General Hux comes into the room and he can't believe what he's seeing. Snoke is dead, his tongue sticking out and everything colo colo K- no that's not a character kylo is still unconscious and hux actually goes for his gun he would have killed kylo in his sleep probably uh, because they don't like each other and hux would probably like to take control of the first order but kylo wakes up they argue and then kylo force chokes hux which is very reminiscent of darth vader uh, this is this is Darth Vader's trick, isn't it? So it just shows that uh, Kylo has become like the new Darth Vader. Finally, Hux capitulates and he calls Kylo the Supreme Leader. The Supreme Leader is dead. Long live the Supreme Leader. So kylo is now in charge of the first order oh god longest episode ever all right so the the, the confrontation on crate so the first order approached the base with a big gun the resistance launch a counter-attack with these old beaten up old speeder things there's almost no way they can win the millennium falcon turns up at the last minute and helps out by making all the tie fighters chase it this is another big emotional moment when the falcon arrives to save the day or save that particular moment anyway. The music swells, and John Williams's musical score is brilliant again, and there are some stunning visuals as the Falcon is chased by TIE fighters through these crystal caves and tunnels under the surface of Krait. But ultimately, the Resistance mission to destroy the battering ram cannon can't win, and Poe calls it off. Uh, this shows us that Poe has learnt something about leadership and strategy from the beginning of the film. But Finn doesn't want to give up and he's about to sacrifice himself for the resistance by flying his ship into the cannon in a suicide mission. I was convinced that he was going to do it, to be honest, but at the last minute, Rose crashes into him and saves him. Now, I thought this was a pretty cheesy moment, I have to say. First of all, you can see from the wide shots as Finn is flying that Rose is nowhere near him. But But again, uh, this is a bit like that moment when the detonator you know button gets caught by rose 's sister at the start of the film. Movies often break the rules of physics like this, so i 'm willing to let it slide and then there 's the moment uh, where, after Rose saves Finn, she gives a little speech saying we don 't do this to destroy the things we hate; we do it to protect the ones we love and then she kisses him, so this is a slightly forced romantic moment, first of all, but the sentiment is nice. We should protect the things we love rather than destroy the things we hate. And it's all sweet and good and nice. But I thought about, uh, it did make me think about a moment from episode three, uh, that crucial moment when Anakin turns to the dark side. Now, Anakin becomes Darth Vader. He turns to the dark side. He decides to join Emperor Palpatine precisely because he thinks that this is how he's going to save the one he loves, Padme. If you remember, he he chooses to turn to the dark side because he thinks the Emperor Will have the power to rescue Padme from uh, from a death that he's he's uh, uh, foreseen. So uh, Anakin is seduced by the dark side because he wants to prevent Ad- Padme from dying. So he's seduced b- by the dark side because he wants to protect the ones he loves. So it's all about points of view, isn't it? At the end of the day, protecting what you love, destroying what you hate. They're sort of two sides of the same coin, aren't they? Still. Uh, I think the basic message is nice, that love conquers hate. And I do agree with that. You know, Be careful of doing things for hateful reasons. We should be motivated by love, basically. Uh, But isn't this a slightly selfish thing for Rose to do? She stopped Finn from potentially saving the entire resistance just because she personally loves him. But maybe the resistance were screwed anyway. I think the point is, we shouldn't think about this too much. Maybe we shouldn't record uh, three and a half hours worth of podcast on it. Mm. Um, we shouldn't expect Star Wars to be this perfect, flawless thing. As I said before, I think the good things in the film outweigh the bad things. And blah, de blah. But then again, if you're angry um, about Star Wars, um, uh, then that's fine. It's up to you. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. Everyone has their own subjective reaction to the film. So it looks like the Resistance are screwed then. Somehow Finn manages to fly back to the base with Rose or perhaps he even drags Rose's body back there. She's kind of injured, but she's not dead. I'm not sure how he manages to get her back, but I don't know. Maybe he used some of those trenches or something, or maybe he used one of those crashed speeders. I don't know. Leia looks defeated. She says that all hope is lost. Then Luke Skywalker turns up and there's an emotional moment when he speaks to Leia and they agree that Kylo Ren wasn't Luke's fault that, and Luke, comforts Leia by giving her a a, a memento of Han Solo, a, a pair of dice that used to hang in Han Solo's Millennium Falcon. Luke then goes out to face the First Order armed with his lightsaber. When I saw this Uh, I I was really excited, and yet I didn't know what to expect. Luke said it himself that he couldn't face down the entire First Order, uh, armed only with a laser sword. Uh, Kylo, in his command ship, orders everyone to fire on Luke, using all their weapons. Uh, The 80 M6 Walkers all fire on Luke simultaneously. Kylo is enraged, shouting for more and more and more firepower. And this really is overkill. There's just a huge cloud of red dust where the lasers are firing. We can't see Luke Skywalker. He's just obscured by this big cloud of dust hux eventually says that's enough and the guns stop kylo slumps in his seat he should be satisfied because surely he's destroyed luke skywalker he should be satisfied at this moment but he's not he'll probably never be satisfied kylo ren Um, and we're all thinking well luke surely isn't dead and of course he isn't he steps out of the cloud of red dust unscathed he looks up at kylo's ship and he even brushes his shoulder dismissively which is pretty cool Uh, and there's this there's something strange about luke he looks younger his beard and hair are shorter he has no dust on him at all kylo is furious again and he instructs his soldiers to take him down to the surface to face luke uh, and they they become they come face to face with each other and it's like something from a samurai film. It's brilliant. Kylo says, "I suppose you've come to save my soul," and Luke just says, "No." And this is really awesome. I can't explain why. I don't have time. Also, Mark Hamill in this film is absolutely brilliant. He's really developed as an actor since the original trilogy. He ignites his lightsaber and it's the blue one, which is weird because I thought the blue one got split in two when Kylo and Rey were fighting each other earlier. Kylo doesn't seem to notice this because he's in a rage. He ignites his crackling red lightsaber. I love Kylo's brutal style and the way he stands sort of hunched over. Luke looks really cool in his classic Jedi clothing. Kylo runs at Luke and attacks him, but Luke manages to avoid all his attacks. He does some pretty cool moves where he kind of rolls out of the way, making Kylo really angry. This is not the sort of epic gymnastic lightsaber combat from the prequel films. This is a lot more about the drama between two characters. There's a lot more emotion and feeling in this than in watching Anakin and Obi-Wan Kenobi jumping from object to object, swinging their lightsabers again and again until you're emotionally uninvested in the action. This is much more like a Japanese samurai movie where the swordplay is brief but intense. In fact, Luke looks a lot like a samurai in this scene, and that's fantastic. It's so atmospheric and powerful. An interesting detail in this fight is that Kylo's feet leave red marks on the floor where the salt gets disturbed under his feet, but Luke's feet make no impressions on the floor at all. Apparently, you can also see salt particles falling from Kylo during the fight, but nothing falling from Luke. Only later do we realize that Luke isn't really there at all. He's doing a force projection from Akto, and it's all part of a plan to mentally defeat Kylo while giving the remaining members of the Resistance a chance to escape. Luke tells Kylo, Today the Resistance is reborn, and you can never defeat me. Something like that. He also does some Obi Wan Kenobi stuff to him. He says, If you strike me down in anger, I'll always be with you just like your father. And that's got to hurt Kylo Ren. Kylo angrily charges at him and swipes his lightsaber at Luke, but the blade passes straight through his body. At the time, I was thinking, wow, has Luke been hiding his power all this time? Is he immune to lightsabers? And then I thought, oh, wow, he's he's a force ghost, isn't he? Uh, I thought he was a force ghost. Then it's revealed that Luke is actually meditating on a rock in Akto. And the whole thing is a force projection. He's managed to project himself all the way across the galaxy like this. And that's incredible. I mean, that's like a force power that we haven't seen before. And it shows that Luke Skywalker is surely uh, a a, a master of the force like we've never seen before. Luke then says to Kylo, see you around, kid, and disappears. I think see you around, kid, is the sort of thing that Han Solo would say, which is pretty cool. Um, Especially since, you know, Han Solo was Kylo's dad and Kylo killed Han Solo in anger and you know so i th- i think what this means is that luke is going to haunt kylo as a force ghost he's always going to be there and kylo will never have peace he'll always be reminded of how he murdered his own father then luke disappears and kylo is in a rage again when he realizes that re- that the resistance have been given time to escape what i like about this this bit at the end of the film is that we don't get a big lightsaber duel, but that makes a change. At least we have some really interesting character-based interaction. Luke manages to teach Kylo a lesson without using violence. He only uses defense, and he defeats Kylo mentally. He sacrifices himself to save the resistance because doing that force projection was so tough, uh, so taxing, uh, that it ultimately Luke um, does die as a result of doing this. It takes everything out of him. And he shows Rey that the Force isn't just about lifting rocks, controlling people's actions, or being really good with a lightsaber. It's also about introspection and peace. Also, I like the fact that in the midst of all this fighting and explosions, Luke has learned how to win a battle without using violence. In fact, I respect Luke's decision to just go onto an island and live like a hermit. At least he's decided that he's fed up with the incessant fighting and war. He's perhaps the only character to say that he's had enough of the fighting. And isn't this a sort of a logical progression of what he's learnt while facing the Emperor in episode six? When he faced the Emperor in episode six, he threw down his lightsaber, he threw his lightsaber away and refused to fight or give in to his anger because he's a Jedi. And that's really how that that was a, a big reason why he managed to defeat the Emperor you refused to fight him. So don't blame Luke for choosing to go to that island and for feeling like a failure. He was actually just trying his best to prevent any further cat- catastrophe and it was all part of his learning process. This feels like the way of the true Jedi from a certain point of view. Also, he's demonstrating incredible force power by doing this projection. This is something new that we haven't seen before. Again, some people are pissed off with this, saying that's not how the force works. But honestly, I'm glad that we're seeing some new force powers in this film. It's about time we had some slightly new things. And, you know, Star Wars has to change. It has to diversify. Otherwise, it's just going to die, isn't it? So accept it. It's going to change a little bit. But it's still Star Wars. By doing this, Luke uh, also manages to create the myth of Luke Skywalker, uh, which will no doubt be told again and again and again. He's accepted his place as a myth and how important and powerful this can be as a way of inspiring new new generations to have hope. This is beautiful. Luke has always been a symbol of hope, but he's a fallible human who couldn't always live up to his own myth but he manages at the end to do it in his own way according to how he understands the light side of the force, using defence, not attack, without using violence, fighting a mental battle. Then back on Acto, we see Luke collapse from the strain of doing this massive force projection. He climbs back up onto the rock and stares out across the ocean at the sunset and its two suns. And this actually made me cry. I couldn't help it. Uh, It just took me straight back to that moment in episode four when Luke was not much more than a boy staring across the desert at the dual sunset of Tatooine, full of aspiration and dreaming of adventure. And that's how he ends his life, too. I can't really put it into words, but this just got me right in the feelings. Uh, It's pretty ridiculous uh, that I cried in a Star Wars film, isn't it? But there it is. Luke then disappears in the same way that Obi-Wan did and Yoda did. He He becomes one with the Force. I guess this means that he'll be back as a force ghost in episode nine, which is good. I really like Mark Hamill, and I hope to see more from him in the next film. Meanwhile, the last remaining members of the resistance have worked out that there must be a way to get back through the uh, there must be a way to get out through the back of the caves by following the crystal foxes that live there. Uh, there's quite a magical moment where one of these beautiful crystal foxes leads them to a gap at the back of the cave, but it's filled with boulders. Rey is on the other side. She's used the tracking device to follow their position from the surface in the falcon with Chewie. She works out that this pile of boulders is blocking them from escaping, and she's going to need to use the Force to move them all. This is a bit ironic, because earlier in the film, Luke told her that the Force isn't just about lifting rocks. Well... Apparently, sometimes it is. Of course, she manages to lift all the rocks, freeing the last remaining members of the Resistance as they escape in the Falcon. There must there must be just about 10 people left, I think. But Leia says they have all they need to start again. They are the spark that will light the fire to burn down the First Order and all that stuff. We see also that Rey has managed to keep the Sacred Jedi texts. She must have pinched them Uh, from the force tree before she left and they're in a drawer uh, they're just kept in a drawer on the falcon so she's got the sacred jedi texts i suppose this means that she can learn the ways of the force uh, or learn the ways of the jedi properly and maybe she'll get some help from luke's force ghost this is not the end of the jedi and maybe the new jedi will rise or something Kylo Ren and Rey have one more force vision before the Falcon leaves. They stare at each other and Rey closes the door, signifying that she's closing herself off from him, I suppose. But surely the interesting thing going forward will be their relationship. Will she be able to turn him back to the light or defeat him somehow? Will Kylo turn her to the dark somehow? What's going to happen to Kylo? I quite like the idea that he'll be haunted by Luke as a ghost. A bit like the way that Macbeth is haunted by his friend Banquo in the Shakespeare play Macbeth. In the final scene of the film, we see some of those slave kids on Canto Bite. One of them is telling the others the legend of Luke Skywalker, Luke Skywalker standing up against the entire First Order. It reminds me of how C-3PO tells the Ewoks the story of the rebellion in episode six. The other children are enthralled by the story and seem genuinely inspired. This show's that the legend of Luke Skywalker gives hope to the next generation. Then the kids are told off by their cruel slave owner boss type guy, and one of the kids goes out to sweep the yard. He grabs the broom using a little force pull. He pulls the broom to his hand using the force, showing that he's force sensitive, and then he looks up at the stars and sees a distant spacecraft fly across the sky. The end. I suppose this final scene means that anyone can be strong in the Force, you don't have to be part of a specific bloodline, that Luke's legend is an inspiration to the poor, lost or forgotten people, and that the Resistance is not dead and that there's still hope left in the galaxy. And that's a nice message, isn't it? So in summary, I found The Last Jedi to be bold in the way that it refuses to pander to the fan theories and expectations brave in the way that it pushes the saga forwards by doing some new things and letting some old things die, nuanced in the way that it allows uh, the characters to develop in complex and quite flawed ways, and fun in how it included some pretty weird comic moments, and just awesome in the way it dealt with several key moments of action that were fueled more by emotion than by technical skill. I think it's an intelligent film, it's a surprising film, it's one of my favourite Star Wars episodes, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again so I can pick up on some more of the subtle details that made it enjoyable. I have no idea how episode 9 is going to carry on, and I like that feeling. Apparently, J.J. Abrams is going to conclude the saga by directing episode 9. He also directed Episode 7. J.J. is obviously a very competent filmmaker and someone who understands the core appeal of Star Wars, but I'm also a little bit worried because J.J. Abrams has an approach to making films that involves posing lots of mysterious open-ended questions rather than by providing satisfying resolutions. Think of Lost, the TV show. It was brilliant at setting up lots of questions and mysteries that kept the audience guessing. But none of those questions and mysteries were adequately explained in the end. I just hope that episode nine can at least bring some resolution and closure to the story rather than just leaving it all open to the interpretations of the slightly unhinged fanbase. I look forward to reading your opinions if you have them. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of this um, marathon episode of the podcast. I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. In fact, the next one will be more Star Wars stuff, including a conversation with James and Dad about this film. So you can look forward to listening to that. Thanks so much for listening. Speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,